God is working out his plan. God is working out his plan uh, in our world. And I know that's a big truth today, but it's, it's a truth that makes all the difference in our lives. God is working out his plan. That's true for the world, uh, but that's also true for each one of us. Um, and sometimes we think, well, God's got this big plan for the world, but we're not so sure whether God has a plan for my life. And um, there is something that God wants to do in your life, and I actually want you as I uh, talk this morning, I want you to think about what it is that God is doing in your life. Uh, I want you to think in terms of... Uh, his character development in your life, who he's making you to become. But I also want you to think in terms of what does he want to do in my life. Um, and as we began to talk last week from the prophet Zechariah, we uh, started with a mental picture of uh, the place of sacrifice at the temple. And I, I want you to get this in your mind uh, that God didn't just save you so that someday you would go to heaven. There is something between salvation and heaven. There is, a, there is character development, but there are tasks, there are things that God wants to use you. And there's a truth that I want us to learn today. And in the midst of that process, that we understand that our, in the midst of that, that our earthly circumstances will always be less than ideal. That's not necessarily a happy clappy thought this morning, but it's real. It's reality. Just, we're going to start there. That our earthly circumstances will always be less than ideal. Now, I think sometimes we have this delusion as people that God has saved and his hand is on our life and we're seeking to serve him, we're seeking to follow him, that somehow, because I follow God, then my circumstances are going to all work out and everything's going to just be ideal. I've been at it a long time, and I'm not there yet. So I'm assuming if it, that hasn't worked out for me, it's probably not going to work out for you. Our earthly circumstances will always be less than ideal, even when we are following God's plan. And if we wait... To follow God until our circumstances are ideal, then it's never going to happen. If we wait for circumstances to be ideal, for circumstances to be right, 
it's, it's not going to happen. And I believe part of the reason for that is just the way God designed our earthly existence. And I want us to understand today as we look to the scripture in Zechariah that obedience, therefore, will always require a step of faith. There's going to come a point where God calls us to do something or God wants to do something in our lives and we look at our outward circumstances and we say, it's not really a good time. One of the things I want us to learn today is that when God speaks, it's always perfect. And when God speaks, it is his perfect timing. There is a reason that God says things at a certain time. Not just what he says, but when he says it. And when God speaks to us and he wants to do something in our lives and we look around at our circumstances and we say, well, it's not really a good time, faith is required. Obedience, and I'm just telling you, I, the scripture will teach us this today. I can verify it from personal experience. That obedience will always require a step of faith, which dismisses our earthly circumstances and is obedient despite those circumstances. This was a lesson that God was communicating to the people uh, in Zechariah's day. Now, I said last week as we started our series on Zechariah that to understand the message of Zechariah, we must understand the historical setting of Zechariah. And I know I spent about 20 minutes last week on that. I uh, don't have time for that today. Uh, but the short version. The children of Israel have suffered the discipline of God and they've gone off to Babylon, to Babylon in exile. Seventy years later, God sends about 50,000 of them back with the task of building the temple. And they started the temple with great enthusiasm. They built the altar of sacrifice and the foundation. I wanted you to get that visual of where the building project was when Zechariah comes on the scene. The foundation has been laid. There is an altar of sacrifice. They are doing sacrifice. But, for, but life happens. Their circumstances were not ideal because of politics, economics, and opposition. And for 14 years, they stop. Brings us to the year 520. And we can read, you can read this in Ezra. But God calls two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to challenge the people to begin to build the temple again. And that, that's, where we, that's, that's the little historical slice that we find ourselves in. God has is challenging them through the prophets to rebuild the temple. That's in f the fall, actually, of the year 520. Um, 
as I have studied the book of Zechariah, I've, I've chosen the title for these messages to be the glory in small things. And every Sunday, I want us to talk about how God takes our obedience in small things. And I, I didn't really explain that small things last week, but there is, if you were to look in your Bible at Zechariah 4.10, he talks about those who despise the day of small things. 4.10, the one who despises the day of small things. And as I was reading through the book of Zechariah and going, okay, what's, Lord, what's this about? What does it say to us today? I kept going back to that. There were some in the midst of the rebuilding of the temple that just kind of dismissed it. It's like, listen, that's rinky-dink. That's not the glory. And you can see this also in Haggai. It's like, listen, this doesn't look anything like it used to look. This is nothing. And I think it would have been easy for the people to say, man, I, uh, you know, this is nothing. It's a small thing. And I, my mind just is kind of set there. And I want you to think about that, that there are things, there are character development points, and there are things that God asks us to do that sometimes maybe we just dismiss because we go, I... It, it's rinky-dink, it doesn't matter. But I believe what we will see in the book of Zechariah is that God takes our obedience in those small things and he projects it into the future and even amplifies it for his glory. We're, we're going to see this in Zechariah. God says, all I need you to do is to rebuild this temple and if people despise it, if the people that... Your grandfather who came back with you from exile, Zechariah, that looked at this and went, oh my, you can't even imagine. I saw the first one. This is, this is, this doesn't measure up in the glory. Just do what I've asked you to do. And all of a sudden, Zechariah begins to project it into the future and says, God's going to use this in a glorious way. And you cannot even wrap your mind around what God will do. If you will just be obedient to what I've asked you to do. And that's what I mean by the title, The Glory in Small Things. In the first six verses of chapter 1, he talks about the challenge, Return to Me. Um, he didn't want them to repeat history. He wanted them to return to God before his discipline came for their disobedience. And so 14 years have passed. Let's pick up in verse 7. Um, and it says, and we're just, I'm not going to read all, I'm going to read to the end of the chapter eventually. Um, notice what it says. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet. Now, I understand that these dates don't mean anything to you, but if you take the dates from Haggai of when he started prophesying, and he, he was about two months before Zechariah delivered his first message, and we can date that in that first verse of chapter 1. 
but, but just get this. So uh, general terms, Haggai comes in late summer of 520, let's say August, right about now. And then the people began to rebuild the temple. Haggai exhorts them to rebuild the temple, and they begin. About a month in, so about, uh, let's say, October of 520, uh, Zechariah delivers his first message, chapter 1, 1 through 6. About four months pass. It's, a, it's February of 519, this date. Remember what I told you? Not only what God says is perfect, but when he says it, it is his timing is perfect. And I think there's something very significant that we understand that they were, they were, four, they were five months into the rebuilding of the temple. And there's this second message or wave of messages that God gives to Zechariah. It is described in verse 7 as the word of the Lord. So in verse 8, he's about to see a vision. I'm just going to tell you that there are going to be visions that God gives Zechariah uh, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 6. There are eight of them. We're going to cover two of them quickly this morning. There are these eight visions that God sends. And you say, it's not just a question of what does God mean by the vision, but why did God send it at that time? God's message is perfect. His timing is perfect. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you where I'm heading. I believe the people out of faith, because of Haggai's exhortation, began to rebuild the temple. I would say when their circumstances were less than ideal, and they were four months in, five months in, I'll I'll let you know it's going to take them four years to complete the temple. You know what I think they got up against? (laughs) They were in five months of obedience, and you know what happened to their earthly circumstances? They didn't change. Kingdom politics were still the same. There was still an economic downturn, and the people of the land were still opposing them. And if if you read Haggai, he's, he's the guy that... His words are recorded early in that time frame of the rebuilding of the temple, and they start. And I believe Zechariah picks it up. And there's a vision given in verse 8. And it says, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding a red horse. And it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow. And behind him were horses red, sorrel, and white. Well, even verse 9, Then I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. Now, verse 8 is the vision. There's going to be eight of these through chapter 6. These are what we would call apocalyptic uh, visions or prophecies. Apocalyptic. Uh, Wow. Apocalyptic. I don't know what that communicates to you, but... Uh, If you're a Greek major, (laughs) you know that apocalyptic means revealing. It means something that is hidden that is then revealed. Uh, In fact, the book of Revelation, Revelation there, is in the Greek is apocalypse. Uh, We maybe think of it in other terms, 
But I want you to understand that in this section of Scripture, along with certain Scriptures like Daniel, Ezekiel, and almost exclusively the book of Revelation, it is apocalyptic uh, literature. It is, it is God's revelation of, this is my definition of apocalyptic, God's revelation of the heavenly reality in symbolic earthly pictures. God is going to reveal what is hidden. He is going to reveal a heavenly reality, but he's going to put it in symbolic earthly terms, pictures. So you, you see this in Daniel, Ezekiel, uh, this section through uh, Zechariah, Revelation, I don't know, there may be some other ones. God's going to give them a vision, the prophet of vision, and it is going to be what I described last week, heaven's curtain being opened, and God said, I want, you to, I want you to see what is going on in the heavenlies. And here's the point. When they are in the midst of their obedience, they are looking at their earthly circumstances, and they're going, listen, I'm being obedient to God, but nothing in my earthly circumstances is changing. And God says, in the middle of the night to Zechariah, boom, I'm just gonna pull back the curtain. And I need you to relate this to the people because they need to see the heavenly reality they can't see with their human eyes. You've got to know what's going on in the spiritual realm. I'm going to pull back the curtain. Why does he put it in earthly symbolic pictures? I was about to say, duh. No, I'm sorry. That, that sounds tacky, doesn't it? I won't say, I just did it, didn't I? Because... We don't have eyes to see the spiritual reality with, with, with our earthly eyes. We can't. God has to put it in earthly terms. And so there are these symbolic pictures, and we see it in the apocalyptic literature in which God opens the curtains of the heavenlies and he reveals the hidden reality to his people because they were only looking at their earthly circumstances through their physical eyes. Um, the picture is, so verse 1, I saw by night a man riding on a red horse and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Uh, when God pulls back the curtains, he shows this picture of four mounted patrols. These are angelic beings. Uh, they are on patrol over the earth. Uh, the horse was a symbol of military power and authority. They would have understand it, stood it in Zechariah's day because this is what the Persian Empire did. They had mounted patrols and for speed of communication, they sent these horsemen out, these patrols out into the regions of this vast Persian Empire to see how things were going. It was a statement of their military power, but their authority over that land. Um, when God gives a vision, the details are always significant. 
God's not just going, oh, well, let me just kind of speak about this in flowering terms and let me throw in some details that don't matter. No, all the details. There's mounted patrols. There's four of them because four is the number that speaks about something being worldwide. Um, uh, Four corners of the earth, we would say. Four directions, north, south, east, west. So when you say four horsemen that are going out, they are going to go worldwide. Why is that going to be significant? Because what, what God is teaching them is, I am Lord worldwide. The Persian Empire thinks they have a vast empire, but I am the Lord over all. Four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west. Um, The horses and the horsemen on the horses denote God's authority and power. They are various colors, and we see this in Revelation 6 because they have various roles or functions in in Revelation 6, there are four horsemen and the horses are four different colors and they, they go out and one is a horse of war, one is a horse of famine, one is a horse of death, one is a horse of pestilence. And so to say that these are four different colors speaks that they cover all aspects of God's control and Lord's, not just all directions, but all aspects. In all ways, God is Lord Overall, they are in a hollow. Hmm. We might use the word ravine. <laughs> Maybe your translation says ravine. I don't know. Hollow. It's hard for me even to say hollow. Anyhow, they're in a ravine. Uh, why are they in a ravine? Because Israel is in a low p- place in their life. Uh, there's another aspect of this that when he sees the vision, there are myrtle trees. In the ravine, the myrtle trees. I, I think of crepe myrtles. Um, I don't know. It, it's not really a tree. It's more of a shrub. Even in Palestine, uh, they they tended to lo- grow in the low places where water would collect. But the myrtle trees or shrubs in the holy lands are evergreens. <laughs> and you go, why? Why are there myrtle trees? Oh my, we don't have time, 15 minutes left. There's no way I could spend 15 minutes just on the myrtle trees. The myrtle trees were used by the Jews in the final feast of their year, the Feast of Tabernacles. They cut down the evergreens the myrtle trees, and they built, years ago we would have called them brush arbors. It's the equivalent of camping out in the ancient world. They, and the, the Feast of Tabernacles is the last feast in their calendar year, and it celebrated God's provision and protection in the 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. I'm going to have to come back to this. There is something significant there. I'm just going to go ahead and throw this out. Brother Gerald and I have talked about this point. Uh, There were three feasts. 
feast of Passover and unleavened bread in the spring of the year. Fifty days later, there was Pentecost, celebrated the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And in the fall of the year, their tenth, their, that month, seventh month, uh, started on the first day with the blowing of... I think on the tenth day was the day of atonement. And I believe on the 14th or the 21st day was the Feast of Tabernacles. Brother Gerald and I have talked about this. Um, Passover was fulfilled by Jesus in his death on the cross. Pentecost was fulfilled in Acts 2 in the sending of the Spirit. In God's scheme of his redemptive history, there is only one thing left to be fulfilled. And we sang about it. The blowing of trumpets, the day of atonement, and tabernacles. Uh, don't have time to trace it all down this morning. But when he talks about myrtle trees, God does not give these details insignificantly. No, there's a reason. Because he is beginning to look towards the future. Do you understand that someday... Jesus fulfilled Passover in March, April. Pentecost was fulfilled on that feast. Brother, to walk to and fro throughout the earth because he is Lord over all. His mounted patrol has gone out as a statement of his power and his authority to the four corners of the earth, verse 11. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees. He just keeps saying it. And said, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. The mounted patrols went out. The heaven, he pulls back the curtains and he says, what you can't see in the heavenlies is that God is sovereign. He is Lord over all the four ends of the earth worldwide. And he has sent out, you can't see it, but he has sent out the angelic beings that have gone to, 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 to look at the earth and what is the condition. And all is resting quietly. And we stop there at the end of that verse and we say, oh, that, that's good. It's not good. It's good if you're the powers that be and everything is resting quietly. That is a statement of Persians, the Persians' control over that part of the world. All, there is no rebellion. There is nothing going on. That is good if you are the powers that be, but you'll see in the next verse, it's not good if you're the oppressed. Why? Because the oppressed were looking for anything in the world that would denote that their circumstances were going to change. As long as everything was secure and resting peacefully, then they could only expect that they were going to be under Persian control. It was a st God acknowledged by his mounted patrol. There's nothing on the horizon that says your circumstances are going to change. He acknowledges that. Verse 12, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which, against which you were angry these 70 years? 
You understand, I don't even have time to talk about this, the angel of the Lord. Brother Dole knows this. We talk about it in our life group. This is a pre-incarnate appearance, epiphany, whatever you want to call it, of Jesus, pre-incarnate, before he becomes flesh. Um, the, The angel of the Lord. The question is, how long? Lord of hosts, he uses it over and over in this scripture. I said it last week, understand this. The host are the host of heaven. They are the angelic beings. They are the spiritual warriors, soldiers on God's side that God's people cannot see because they are looking at their earthly circumstances with their earthly eyes. But when God pulls back the curtains... He sends the heavenly host. The heavenly host, in fact, are involved in the earthly realm. You just can't see it. He pulls back the blinders of our eyes. But all through this section of Scripture, God is called the Lord of hosts. He is the one who has the heavenly armies. And he says that to the oppressed people that are oppressed by the Persian armies. But when, you, when the blinders of your eyes are pulled back and you see the spiritual forces, you see that God has an army that is greater than the armies that are oppressing you, the Lord of hosts. And he makes this commitment to his covenant love. In verse 14, he says, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. For I was a little angry And they helped, but with evil intent. The message comes that God says, I am zealous. But even beyond that, a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. You will will see signs of construction and construction workers because it's not just that my house is going to be rebuilt. But Jerusalem will be built, rebuilt. But even verse 17 beyond that, again proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. God said, I'm zealous. I'm passionate about my covenant love for you. And I am carrying out a plan that I will, I will punish those who have oppressed you, and not only am I going to work so that my house is built, but all of Jerusalem and the surrounding cities will be built, God begins to project it out and amplify it in such a way to say that I will be doing a glorious thing. But right now, I need you to lay some stones upon stones. That's what I'm asking you to do. And some may despise it as small things. But you be faithful. And God will take your obedience in small things and He will project it out into the future and even amplify it for His glory. The message of vision one and two is that even when your earthly circumstances are still the same. Know that your heavenly circumstances are not. God is in control and He has a plan and He is actively working that plan. For us today, I want to close with this. 
We need to understand God's timing. And understand that our obedience, the time for our obedience, cannot be dependent upon our earthly circumstances. God's way is always to require us to step out in faith first. So where are you? And what is God doing in your life? If you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, then God has a covenant with you. He is working out His plan in your life, not just to get you to heaven someday, but character formation and things that He wants you to do. I'm just telling you, if you wait for the circumstances to be ideal to obey God, you never will. God asks before circumstances change, no, you be obedient. And you know that God will take that obedience and someday He will project it out and amplify it in a glorious way. But you have to be obedient now. Obedience to God always requires faith, a step of faith. You can't wait for your circumstances to change. And when you are obedient to God and your circumstances still don't change, faith has to see you through to say, no, I will continue on this path because this is what God called me to do. Whether I can see it with my earthly eyes or not. Amen? Amen. Father, today we, uh, we thank you for... Uh, your love for us, your zealous love for us. We thank you for your Son who provided the sacrifice for our sins. But Father, we thank you that you're at work, not only in our world, but in our lives. That our lives might be a, something that brings you glory. And so, Father, I pray that you give us faith to be obedient in the midst of circumstances that are a lot less than ideal. And Father, we pray that you would use it for your glory. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.